Nanadost Podcast. Welcome, welcome to another episode of the Nana Nana Dose podcast. Yes, this is the Nana Dose podcast. You know I am your host, Ashiva, and this is the podcast where you get a dose of effective adulting. I am so excited today. I'm excited because I have a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful host joining me. It's a pre-recording and... Um, I will give you all the details about my guest in that recording. His name, nonetheless, is Dr. Murad Verma. And he was so willing, so inclined to join me here on this episode. Guys, we're talking about depression today and this is a big topic. I realize nowadays that a lot of persons are capitalizing on this topic of depression because we realize that regardless of the age group, everyone is being affected by this disease one way or the other. And so Dr. Verma joined me to really explore this topic. We explored his experience and uh, we just want you to be a little bit more mindful of this conversation and this it is and this topic at large. So you can find Dr. Verma on all socials at I like to mud it. That is I like the number two M-U-D-I-T, Murid. I like to Murid. And uh, and uh, as for the Nanados podcast, you can find me as well on Twitter and on Instagram at Nanados. That is N-A-N-O-D-O-S-E-D, Nanados podcast. We're also on all podcast platforms, so you can always check me out and, you know, listen to all the other episodes that were previously recorded remember as well to raise this podcast on apple podcast and to leave your comments if needs be thank you so much for just rocking with me and being an adosa i appreciate you guys i say that every week and i will forever say it in every one of my episodes i will not be here if it wasn't for my dedicated listener so thank you once more for listening to me week after week nonetheless guys you're gonna get right into the conversation i hope you enjoy i hope you're uplifted by the end of the conversation i hope you are even so permitted to continue having this conversation within your closets among your friends in public to the general audience of whoever you're speaking with continue talking about depression it's affecting everybody and we all need to be aware have a listen guys and please do enjoy hi everyone welcome 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 to the nanados podcast i am of course your host ashiva and we are on the topic of depressed depression now with me today i have a very very special guest can i tell you that he's a psychologist he is a mental health advocate and the doctor of pharmacy graduate from the University of Maryland. Now, if you think I'm done, I'm not yet done. <laughs> he's a podcaster, he's a YouTuber, and he is a comedian. Now, please help me welcome Dr. Mudit Verma. Dr. Verma, thank you for joining me today. 
Thank you so much. I'm super thankful to be here. Yes, absolutely. Now, I mentioned that you are a psychologist. My first question to you, why psychology and why advocate for mental health? Right. So in my undergrad in college, I came into college wanting to, if not being expected to, major in uh, biology, particularly molecular biology. My, my parents are mm -hmm. PhD trained scientists. Uh, my father in biochemistry and, and my mom in chemistry. Yeah, and essentially, I took a course in uh, psychology my very first semester, and I was the most interested in that particular course. It was a social psychology course, and mm -hmm. there were several things going on or that there was there's there's some things to unpack with that particular course and its timing. I was taking introductory level, uh, chemistry courses and biology courses during that first semester. They were very challenging. Uh, but with the psychology course, I, I took an exam in high school, which allowed me to take sort of a, um, a second year level psychology course uh, during my first year. And what was interesting is that I think, you know, despite maybe chemistry and biology having more minutia, having more details, uh, there, there, was a, there was a sense that maybe the psychology course should have been more competitive or challenging, but it was it was it was welcoming and it was it was healing right. and, and and it was it was it was a community of sorts like my classmates the the professor, whereas like in the introductory courses for chemistry and biology it's like despite the learning curve the inevitable learning curve of like a very detailed mm -hmm. science I, I felt that the energy and the attitude and the the emotional climate were were all from my perspective very negative. And, and sort of needlessly, right. needlessly uh, toxic and unwelcoming. Uh, and so I, I chose my undergraduate degree to be psychology while simultaneously taking the courses I needed to take uh, to pursue pharmacy school, which came from a, a bit of a cultural lens and, 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 you know, with my family in particular. My parents really wanted me to go for medical school. But the thing with the medical school paradigm is that both the profession, the lifestyle of the profession and the lifestyle of being a medical student, I, I knew I, I would not have been able to sort of uh, handle it and take care of my own mental health. And so that's sort of where uh, pharmacy kind of became the outcome yeah. there and perpetually throughout. Throughout, throughout college and pharmacy school, I've, I've advocated for mental health in, in every way I can. And I think just to maybe wrap up that particular like intro part is just mm -hmm. like in pharmacy school, it was very challenging. I have to say that just, I, I did graduate, I did finish the degree, but there is a lot of Challenges. Right. And and I also think actively be honest uh, and, and transparent and blunt, perhaps like there's a level of regret with my choice of pharmacy school. But but the issue is it, it wasn't with the cultural kind of nuance to this. The idea of choice is not quite existent as, as maybe <laughs> as, as maybe uh, yeah. uh, for, for other cultures or, or, you know, so. So, yeah, that's my story uh, at a glance. OK, OK. And uh, let's just tap into depression. We know the mechanism really of depression it basically from the mona amine deficiency theories we know that it possesses underlying pathophysiological basis where uh neurotransmitters serotonin and norepinephrine of the central nervous system they are released from the blood so could you explain what the term depression is an illness really means and explore what captivates you when you hear that statement right 
I think that the first thing I want to say is, although I have a bachelor's in psychology and a doctorate in pharmacy, I don't practice. I don't see patients. And my first job after graduating pharmacy school was a research position uh, as, a, as a medical writer for a clinical trials group. And it was not patient facing uh, nor client facing. Okay. I was behind the scenes putting together recommendations from like ongoing clinical trials for perhaps like new medications. And this, I think it ties in. So, so the best thing I can do in this conversation is perhaps like share my personal experiences and and they happen to be personal experiences while like simultaneously having been I guess trained and educated in the field I guess it's not crossing into the area of, of, of actually practicing almost precisely because I have a level of anticipation or preliminary familiarity of like the demands of being a practicing professional that actually sees patients and clients. So, you know, what comes to my mind is that as as you mentioned and defined, I found that to be comprehensive and 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 largely accurate. I've been diagnosed with bipolar disorder and uh, one of the what prompted my bipolar disorder diagnosis was actually a long manic episode. Uh, mm-hmm. And the psychiatrist believed that the reason I had that manic episode was was because I took a medication that was supposed to treat anxiety, but because I may have had a pre-existing depression, which I didn't maybe bring up to them, uh, that that prompted a sort of labile mood and there, and then eventually a manic episode. Uh, so on top of all of that, there's this level of, I guess, depression that's uh, tied to like having bipolar disorder and depression being uh, one of the ends of that uh, disorder and mania being on the other end. Uh, I have been diagnosed with seasonal affective disorder where uh, in the fall and winter, I live in a Maryland, just outside of Washington, D.C. Uh, I can definitely mm-hmm. uh, feel symptoms uh, in the fall and winter that pronounce symptoms and like greater severity of depression in those colder seasons. So as you mentioned, you had a pre-existing condition of depression, right? And I know that bipolar disorders, they both have the same symptoms. So how hard or easy was it for your practitioner to, you know, say and diagnose you with the correct illness? I think that it took me a long time and and I still have questions to this day, maybe just like uh, questions or areas of uh, needing clarification, I guess. It took me a long time to trust the process. Uh, But the thing is, healthcare in the United States, like it's actually legitimately fine to scrutinize it. And and that's like uh, there's concerns uh, surrounding like maybe like profit driven nature of why the infrastructure is the way it is. And like the outcomes not matching the healthcare outcomes or the the health quality of life outcomes not being consistent with economic outcomes. What I think what I want to say is like I found that every time I see a provider in the mental health space, whenever I saw a psychiatrist in particular, a psychiatrist as opposed to a therapist, counselor, psych, or a psychologist, I found psychiatrists to be very quick, very fast, very quick, very concise, uh, and not not really in the most favorable ways at times. Um, and and I guess you know diagnosing and assessing my assessing me, diagnosing my uh, uh, mental health issues, and uh, and then you know prescribing a treatment and, and 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 like the the trial and error nature of psychiatry in particular, when there's prescription of medications involved, I found to be literally like uh, grueling because I've uh, through prescriptions like I, I've tried many medications, many of them failed. And I just don't have that very visceral experience, literally a visceral experience with uh, with literally every type of uh, therapy or, or counseling or essentially non-pharmacologic therapies or interventions uh, for yeah. my mental health issues. So, so it's the quickness. And, and it's like, it's like uh, you know, in terms of how easy or hard, I feel like it's, it's hard on me, but easy for them. It's for them. It's like a yeah. trial and error, like, oh, this didn't work. You know, for them, it's like uh, the side effect of getting a rash. 
like a body, a full blown body rash because this medication. It's like the word rash is only four letters long, and to them, that's all it is for like their their notes. You know, I mean, I don't know. It's like I can't I can't blame them because they have to move through patients and stuff. But it's like, but I'm the one experiencing it. Whereas with the literally any other um, non pharmacologic intervention with like CBT or any talk therapy or any uh, like psychology, which, which I'm not, uh, you know, having gone through pharmacy school, I'm, I'm, I've kind of lost a little bit of touch with like the details of, uh, any right. of the distinguishing factors with the non-farm therapies, but like there's, there's more of a drive to get to tailor, you know, treatment for the patient and not do this like gruesome trial and error. So yeah. Even so, how hard was it dealing with, you know, their trial and error? Yeah, it was, it was hard. I, I have a lot of flashback. I've taken a medication that prompted a rash. Um, even medicines, like I took a, a Bilify at one point to manage bipolar. This is, uh, uh, what is, uh, aripiprazole. And what's interesting is like some of these medications or a lot of them rather have weight gain as a side effect. Uh, and some of the medicines have like greater weight gain side effects than others. But even something as, I guess, what's seemingly trivial as weight gain compared to, you know, it's just like other side effects of, of medications. That was enough. Like, I, you know, I was essentially gaining weight and I, mm-hmm. I don't know, I felt more sluggish. And what, what, se- what was something that seems so trivial on paper, you know, compared to other maybe side effects, like maybe someone goes into anaphylaxis or has, has this like huge body allergy reaction. Like that was enough to really disincentivize me to take it. And like, I spoke to my psychiatrist saying like, I really am not comfortable, you know, existentially with this, with this side effect of weight gain. So it just all around, not particularly enjoyable. And I think that the system or a lot of these side effects and the risks, potential side effects, they can be behavioral in nature and they can be very scary mm-hmm. uh, and they can even worsen the condition. I mean, that's often written in the, in the literature, or the label or handout. And I don't know that the, that society or the system or, but there's not a built in kind of level of like, I'm the one that has to absorb the emotional cost of this trial and error. And there's no, like yeah. my employer or, or my professor, if I was in school, would not necessarily be able to accommodate for that. And if they are, I, I'm still to this day not fluent in like mm-hmm. what office, what like office for disability advocates are like that minutia still intimidates me to this day. Like I sometimes I don't know who to call. And if I do know who to call, there's like a, a waiting period for accommodations to occur. Like this is a big theme. Um, I, I, the bulk of my mental health issues during pharmacy school occurred towards the latter two years of the program. And mm-hmm. I, I had very little patience and kind of like mental bandwidth to essentially make these phone calls, set up arrangements while also studying for class. Uh, my parents wanted me to like finish the program all the way through without taking a break. Essentially, you know, I got overwhelmed and had to continue doing what I was doing. You know, I guess I graduated on time, but this stuff catches up to me. Um, right. especially with this pandemic, you know, there's a lot of time spent in my head with this pandemic and <laughs> so so yeah, yeah. So, kind of hard yes i'm very happy you mentioned the pandemic because i was doing a little reading a couple of days ago and i actually found out that depression has actually increased throughout the pandemic so has the pandemic has an effect on you since you know it started yeah absolutely and and uh i mean thankfully because it's been so long because we're on like month number nine i've i've figured out how I can best manage and best get used to it. The fact that I'm saying that is is sad in the sense that going into the pandemic, we didn't think that this was something that we had to learn how to get used to because we all thought that this would be sorted out and reconciled. (laughs) So um, absolutely. This was very hard. Uh, The beginning was extraordinarily hard. I, I pursued stand-up comedy after leaving my first research job since the, since their company 
moved very quickly from uh, my home state, which is Maryland, to Florida. I was not in a position to relocate. And I finally wanted to take time off. I wanted to take time off for myself, something to the effect of a gap year, maybe not necessarily traveling, but essentially my deep dive into stand-up comedy was kind of that time off that I craved. And, um, uh, and I wanted to specifically attempt comedy when I had enough mental bandwidth where I was not in school and not like working because I think I don't know the creative demands or, or just the learning curves. Like I tend to do better on pursuits, whether they're artistic, academic or whatever it may be when it, that's the one thing I can focus on. Uh, so long story short, comedy was going fantastic until this pandemic hit and everything yeah. shut down. Yeah. And, and it sort of, it was, it was very hard because it kind of ruined the cadence of this time off that I was taking. Uh, in this time off, I, I volunteer part-time for a South Asian mental health nonprofit. And, and it has landed me a very few paid freelance writing gigs. But it's the point is I'm, not, I'm still not full-time employed. I'm like <laughs> hunting for jobs now, yeah. uh, aggressively hunting for paid full-time positions. And uh, th when this pandemic hit, all of stand-up comedy stopped for, you know, for obvious reasons. You can't have live performances. We did as a global stand-up comedy community, we did pivot a little bit uh, into Zoom, which actually has been really good for networking. You know, we, we kind of yeah. tell each other jokes on on group zoom calls and take turns as we do. And, and, and like open mic kind of setting, like at a comedy club or, or a venue. I think that's the, the silver lining with the zoom with the online comedy has been the networking. And as someone that's really new to comedy, that there's still some fulfillment to be had with just kind of writing jokes, structuring jokes, uh, learning how humor is created based on the words. And then, you, you know, it's like a, this intermediary before getting on stage where you're also using your gestures and whatnot. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, that, that's just kind of dissecting the silver lining there. But again, the pandemic just ruined kind of the cadence of this time that I took off because the, the plan was for me to like develop my comedy skills, maybe job hunt in like New York City or, or Los Angeles, mm -hmm. those two areas being like the entertainment hubs. And um, yeah, and maybe like, I don't know, like either work a part time job to pay rent over there or, or like find a full time job that relates to my pharmacy credentials uh, mm -hmm. and or my psychology degree credentials like. Uh, and then, but, you know, but the idea, the driving force was comedy, you know, the passion. And that's kind of like mm -hmm. that may or may not speak to another struggle of identifying a compatible occupation and then realizing that it tends to only manifest as a hobby. And, and what I'm referring to is like comedy versus, mm -hmm. uh, you know, being a, a, a pharmacist versus being a psychologist or uh, versus you know having a career that is much more um, oriented to, you know, like stable day job hours and benefits and things like that. So, so, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, awesome. I actually checked you out on uh, YouTube, and yeah, you had some good jokes over there. So I Thank see you. that, you know, yeah, not a problem. It helped by basically the management of depression, your depression. So apart from comedy, what other management therapy do you have? Right. Speaking for myself and what helps me in particular, I would characterize this maybe as like a self-care regimen. Uh, actually, no, before I get to self-care, I'll, I'll tell you the professional resources I seek right now. So every other Monday at noon local time, I do see a uh, therapist uh, via Zoom. And some things I want to say about that is that when I changed jobs or when I left my first company, like that had implications on my health insurance changing, right? Mm -hmm. And when your health insurance changes, then that has implications on uh, your providers in the sense that, you know, how expensive or not is the copay? Uh, and, and do they take insurance or not? And so that kind of creates this additional barrier and hurdle and obstacle in, in 
in the whole process of seeking a provider, gauging if it's like from a mental health and clinical standpoint, gauging how compatible that provider is with you, maybe like culturally, maybe personality wise, then you have to do this nonsense of gauging of do they take your insurance, which is completely not related to the clinical aspects of treating mental health. That's purely a financial thing. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so, so healthcare infrastructure, when you put private insurance companies is already annoying because when, when there are multiple entities involved, that that's like, you know, it, there's additional red tape, additional logistics, additional time and energy being spent, AKA wasted on just uh, one insurance company communicating to another when uh, the, the customer has to change because of like a career or job implication or, or anything. Like <laughs> it's yeah. like this need, needless layers of complexity that do not pertain uh, if not harm, like it actually harms like kind of like mental health just from like not being able to streamline uh, the delivery of services and access to services. So the, the point there is I'm essentially leaving like voicemails to all kinds of mental health care providers, whether they're counselors, therapists, psychologists. I, I, in the voicemail, I tell them my you know contact info. I tell them my insurance information, which my parents have graciously supported me with. They're paying for my health insurance now. Uh, mm -hmm. And then, you know, I, I essentially wait for them to get back to me when they're available and wait for them to get back to me if, to see if the health insurance is covered. And so there's this there was a couple of months where I had to play this phone tag and voicemail tag and just deal, you know, just stick it out. Like I had to like stick it out until I could get like a first appointment and do what I know could reliably work. So when the weather was nice, I would take like obnoxiously long walks outside, you know, during the day just to like cool off. When the pandemic started, my I think my symptoms were more on the manic side of like bipolar. And, and also it was, it was like, you know, spring was coming. So that, that kind of, uh, for me personally, there are parallels there. And then when the weather gets cooler with like seasonal depression, like uh, that, that stuff gets pronounced. And uh, uh, so, so there was this like, level of like agitation and like being annoyed, existentially annoyed and like, uh, uh, and like mania, like I, my mind was racing because, you know, it's like the pandemic. It was just frustration is, is a word. Uh, that mm -hmm. characterized it. You know, I finally secured a healthcare, I mean, you know, like a, a mental health care provider, this therapist that I see every other Monday. And what's interesting is like, he's pretty decent. Um, he's not perfectly compatible. And like, I could, I could even make the determination that there, there's probably better providers out there. Uh, but the point I want to make is that I stick with this, with this therapist simply because it was such a nightmare uh, getting a hold of one that was simply available. So, you know, like I don't have options here and from like a time and availability standpoint. It, it is clinically important to find a therapist that is right for you. But I am sad to say that as a person consuming, you know, health, mental health care uh, that I need, like I, I felt like I've had to settle. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, because of the, because of the circumstances. Um, uh, and then so, so to bring it, to wrap that up, you know, it's like uh, I, I, I exercise daily. I'm very, good with exercising daily that just generally has good outcomes for me. Cardiovascular exercise in particular helps me out the most and just like getting leveled. Something I, I have a, a bad habit of, and, and I own like responsibility of this is like my sleep habits are awful. And this is on me. Like I just, I, I essentially go to bed late. I'm a night owl. I mean, being a comedian, it's a, it's a nighttime thing. We're, we're never really doing this nine to five unless, unless it's for like a corporate, which would be kind of cool, but yeah, you know, it's a nighttime thing. And um, so I'm trying to discipline my, my own self with just getting to bed sooner. Uh, what I have done a good job with is I've been very particular about kind of my sleep environment uh, where there's no light, residual light in the in the bedroom. I, I'm very particular about like the choice of a uh, blanket and pillow covering. So for my, me in particular, like uh, my body gets very hot and, and that can disrupt my sleep. So I, I choose like materials that are cooling um, and uh, sleep is super important because that has implications on like the you know mood the next day. And it's, it's a cyclical thing. It's an, it's an inevitable cyclical thing that, that, that is sleep. Uh, so the, the exercise, sleep, 
this sounds cliche, but it's just, um, I try to be mindful of like, if, if I'm on social media, which is a big part of comedy and like self-promotion, I make sure that I'm on there with intention and with a mindset of like productivity as opposed to like mindlessly scrolling and being kind of maybe like hypnotized by like the, the social media feed. Um, so having a mindset of like producing social media content for my like comedy stuff, as opposed to like mindlessly consuming it. Um, I, I will support my friends and artists and whatnot, but, but with yeah. intention, uh, yeah. you know, to kind of keep mental health in check and, uh, yeah, yeah. That's, that's sort of my, uh, my strategies and kind of routine and yeah. Yeah. You're also saying that in a nutshell that having a routine helps with the management of depression. I would say so. Yes. Yes. And, and in relation to social media, how important is guarding yourself? Because I, I heard you mention that, you know, you're very intentional in what you do on social media. And uh, mm. I want to ask you, how effective is that? Because even so, sometimes we can see something of our interest that can get us distracted of our, from our rather main intention. Right. So how, how do you keep yourself balanced when you're on social right. media? Yeah, I think... Um... I can maybe go through each platform that I'm engaged with because there's some apps that there, there are moments I have with certain apps that were really bad for my mental health. And there are other mm -hmm. apps that just don't carry that risk. And I'll start with the most problematic ones. Twitter, Twitter in particular, it's a very like the way Twitter works is it's very text heavy and it's like very like one to two to three line heavy, you know, like quick responses. And so there, there's like a lot of clapbacks. There's a lot, of, a lot of like debates, a lot of arguments. And, and like there's a lot of like passive aggressive cadence to it, which means like and, and this is big in comedy. I mean, roasting is a big part of comedy, right? So there's like, yeah, it's like not only are people like replying to tweets, but they're they, they're they're actually trying to get you. Sometimes it's in the medium of humor. Sometimes it's not in the medium of humor. Maybe they're just genuinely trying to like clap back at you. And uh, that's, that's the rabbit hole. Some, like sometimes I get so deep into what should have been maybe like a political discussion or policy oriented discussion on maybe like a political topic. And it's just, it, and it becomes like a contest of like comedic clapbacks. Like <laughs> one tweeter like uses this meme to clap back against that person. And then they use like this GIF and then make this joke. But it, it's just, it gets toxic at a point. Uh, so my relationship with Twitter, the solution is simply distance. I mean, there's no way around that. It's like, and actually maybe there's like a silver line to having multiple apps is like, so I have a historically bad relationship with Twitter. Um, I'm not going to delete it per se, but I just keep quiet on it. And oh. I let that sit. And then um, on Instagram, I don't know if, so in 2019, in the fall of 2019, for users of Instagram in the US, um, there was an update on our app. And maybe this is true for all of Instagram now. I'm, I'm really not sure. But there was an update where the number of likes was changed in, in the sense that you could not see the number of likes on a picture other than your own. And it would just say like tiers of magnitude, this person and others like this photo. So it doesn't give you a number unless you're in the thousands. So it's either... It's either just zero and others or just like others. It's thousands of people and others, or it's maybe like tens of thousands of people and others and like millions. So, so it's like, for me, it's like my Instagram post, uh, at most would get like 100, maybe 200 engagements, usually like 40 to 50. And neither of those figures are anywhere clear, close to a thousand. So that actually, and this was a good thing, uh, at least in my opinion, that very nuanced step or decision by whoever was in charge of Instagram, um, despite being owned by Facebook, was that that liberated me to like be more creative on Instagram without fearing judgment. Cause I was, I was nowhere clear, close to the 1000 threshold. I was like, so that like liberated me to just like freely exist on Instagram without judgment. 
and and that's persisted to this day um, with Instagram. So I, I have like a healthy relationship with Instagram. Um, with Facebook, uh, I used to have a big problem. Facebook's been around since like the mid 2000s. And for the first decade and a half of me using Facebook, mindlessly scrolling through my newsfeed was a big problem. And thankfully that's changed in the past few years, uh, both because of personal changes with like, you know, um, being intentional on all social media. Like I, I, now I have something to promote when I, when I started comedy, it's like, to me, that's something of so much substance that I have a reason to promote it and not, and, and not have it be this thing where maybe like when I had my research, uh, day job that like, I wouldn't post any social media posts about work. First of all, that's not really advisable. I mean, my work was not exciting. It was like client facing company, client facing stuff, uh, like client company facing stuff. It's not like consumer facing, uh, nor patient nor, um, uh, yeah, facing stuff. So it, it, the point is, is it was boring stuff. So it's like the only thing I could post about is like random vacations at concerts I went to. But I'm not the one producing that art. Like when going to a concert, I'm consuming it, right? Which is, it's it's not as substantive of, as me like self-promoting my um comedy. And uh, Facebook is is a really good tool for arranging events, organizing events, open mics for comedy, showcases for comedy, panels. So making the events and the groups as opposed to the mindless like newsfeed and the mindless maybe like friend requesting. I, I think Facebook is, is a lot healthier when it's conceptualized being a member of a Facebook group of a common interest and being an event planner or an event attendee as say a comedian or whatnot. Um, th those are the apps that I'm on. Uh, I'm on. Um, I use LinkedIn to apply to jobs. That's been I don't really have a problem with LinkedIn. Just maybe I'm, I'm really like gunning for these job applications. So that's been kind of tricky just navigating through interviews. Uh, well, actually, but I will say that sometimes this is like a really kind of odd or somewhat dystopian, but like uh, sometimes I, I catch myself scrolling through LinkedIn yes. with, with yeah, the same way I, oh, I used yeah. to scroll through uh, like Facebook or something. So that's been kind of interesting, but yeah, that's, that's my story with uh, social media. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, don't worry about that. Cause boy, we have a couple things in common. I do that all the time. And I was like, Oh wow. I like her accolades. Oh wow. She's so successful. You know, and I, and mm -hmm. I commend persons for what they're achieving so far. Right. right and Dr. Verena, everybody, this episode up and uh before you leave i just want you to give our audience advices as to how they can manage their depression especially in this pandemic because ultimately you know we want to help other persons in their management and we want to reach to other persons who really don't know what to do or the first step to make so what advices would you give to persons managing a uh, depression right now definitely it's, i'm very glad you asked this question my advice is to seek, do your best to take steps in seeking uh, professional treatment. And I, I mentioned earlier that for me, there was a lot of downtime. And, and I also mentioned that for me, there was some struggles in trusting kind of the credibility of some of the medication therapies. And a lot of my opinions and scrutiny are, are valid. So it's, you know, you should be seeking professional care, but, but it's also important to be comfortable with what kind of care you are receiving. It should be an equitable relationship between you and the healthcare provider. Uh, and, and the way to gauge like the quality of said professional care is like, you know, determine what works best for you in terms of maybe like the type of licensure, the type of therapy you seek, maybe talk therapy versus, versus a uh, medication therapy versus um, uh, any other sort of like behavioral therapies. Like try to anticipate maybe what you imagine would work best for you and then and then seek out providers 
from there uh, and then gauge the quality of those providers. Like uh, if, if you have concerns or questions about the quality of the care, uh, speak up about those questions as opposed to maybe like, um, don't feel like you're in a position where you'll offend the provider if you ask them a question that maybe contests their judgment or knowledge or degrees um, because their job is to educate the patient and, and educate in a way that is transparent, that is uh, equitable, that is um, supportive. Uh, so, so taking those steps to seeking professional help, coping the best you can, because for me and many, there's a lot of downtime. There's a lot of waiting time between maybe this, the first email or the first, first phone call or the first voicemail to like the follow-up phone call or the follow-up voicemail. Um, and, and, and not all of your problems are, are solved in the first session or the second session. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a process healing any uh, disease is a process. So um, taking that first step is um, what I advocate for and then taking the subsequent steps as well and sort of committing to the process as best as you can. Um, finding like-minded advocates, finding like-minded caregivers, um, distancing yourself from folks that maybe um, even if their heart is in the right place, but if, if, uh, if being around them for one reason or another is not helping you, just see if you can facilitate some distance. I mean, uh, being as steadfast with your own well-being as the best you can being a little bit leaning a little bit into that selfishness um uh because you know that's that's kind of what gets us through to the, these tough oh. times and, and that's my yeah that's my advice wow thank you so much good advices and i hope persons listening you know they jot a little things down jot even everything that you mentioned because you know i'm sure it will help somebody somewhere and might I add you, I have a lot of Jamaican listeners and here in Jamaica, depression is not treated as essential and, and as, as urgent as it should be treated. And even around the world, we can just imagine. Mm -hmm. But, but you know, here in Jamaica, it's overlooked and it's just looked as and looked upon as sadness and you'll get over it in time. Mm -hmm. But it's time for us to really address this issue and uh, really get to the bottom of it so persons can live a happier and ultimately a healthier life. So ultimately, I really want to thank you so much for joining us here today. Uh, we enjoyed your story. We are enthused by it. We are empowered by it. And uh, I hope we can still keep in touch moving forward, you know, in the future, because you never know. So uh, thank you once more for joining me here on the Nanadost podcast. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And I will definitely keep in touch. Thank you. <laughs>